If you are new with us, we're working our way through the Gospel of Luke, and I'm very excited to be in Luke 14 and 15 um, for our anniversary month in September. These are two of my favorite chapters uh, in Luke's Gospel, and they both remind us of the heart of the Gospel and the priority of evangelism, or why we started the church in the first place, uh, to see lives changed by the Gospel. And today we're considering the ministry of hospitality from a passage that we've looked at at various points uh, in our history. The ministry of hospitality is about turning strangers into neighbors and neighbors into brothers and sisters uh, and to show the kind of grace that we have been shown uh, in Christ. So let's pray together and ask for the Lord's help as we look at this important text. Father, thank you again for another day that we have to assemble together. Thank you for your word. We're reminded of Isaiah who said, this is the one to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We pray that we would be humbled before your word now and that you would build us up in our most holy faith as we look into it. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Well, previously, uh, way back in Luke chapter 5, a couple years ago, um, and it wasn't that long ago, but it was a while ago, uh, I mentioned that uh, Luke takes us on what you might call a food tour uh, in his, his gospel. And I mentioned that as we looked at the text where Jesus called Levi to, to follow him, and Levi invited him over to a great feast. And then on Easter Sunday, we were in Luke chapter 7, where Jesus uh, is at the home again of a a Pharisee and is is eating when this whole scene of this uh, notorious sinner, this lady, comes and and experiences the grace and mercy of Jesus. That also took place uh, at the table. That scene followed what Jesus said about himself, that the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Um, Further in uh, Luke 15, we'll look at hopefully in a couple of weeks, uh, the famous account of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost sons. Uh, What what triggers these parables is the statement, quote, this man, Jesus, receives sinners and he eats with them. In Luke chapter 19, we'll soon read of Zacchaeus, where Jesus also goes to his house to chill. uh, And then we eventually get to the Last Supper, And even after the resurrection, the story of the Emmaus Road, we find Jesus eating with people. Now, Luke chapter 14 is is especially significant because here Jesus is actually teaching us about it. The other places he's he's doing it and he's ministering to people. But in verses 12 to 14, we'll get to in just a moment, Jesus is telling us how to practice the ministry of hospitality. And so this whole scene uh, in Luke 14, 1 to 24, takes place over a dinner. Verse 1 tells us the the context that he goes to dine at the house of a Pharisee. So I wonder if uh, someone asks you today, what what are some of your favorite meals of all time? I wonder where, where your mind would go. Most likely it wouldn't be just the food that you remember in these experiences, but the occasions. Maybe it was a meal at your on your wedding night or on a honeymoon or some special birthday party or when you got to hit a pinata, uh, something along those lines. Like if, if someone says, what's your most memorable meals of all time? You would probably not say, you know, it was when I drove through that uh, Taco Bell drive-thru at midnight. Uh, that was wonderful. Or it's when I was eating tomato soup by myself as a lonely college student. Uh, I just, I just want to go back to that. Or when I was running through the airport and grabbed a chicken wrap. Uh, you know, what you remember are the, the nights where you've got not just food, but friends, family, there's, there's fun. And I don't know if you've ever paused to think about why is it that when someone dies, 
that you love, one of the places you feel their absence is at the table. I think it's because we were made for the table. We were made for these moments. And we are headed there. Isaiah tells us in his great prophecy in Isaiah 26, or 25, which this, this one of these guys alludes to, we'll get to it in a moment, quote, on this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. That's where we're going. In the new creation, at this great feast, no one will be disappointed. And the Lord of hosts will make this feast. We're not talking about Chef Boyardee or frozen taquitos or ramen noodles. We're talking about the Lord of hosts bringing a people, as Walter preached on last week in chapter 13, from east and west, from north and south to recline at the table of the kingdom of God. Revelation 19 speaks of this marriage supper of the Lamb where we are the bride and Jesus is the groom. Now, you may not be a Christian and you may have various ideas about heaven. And a lot of people, unfortunately, get their view of heaven from kind of cultural, you know, cliches or maybe even television, cartoons, country music songs. Um, Many envision heaven being this endless sing-along. And I like singing, but not endlessly. Um, Or it's, it's like we're sitting in rows and we're all being taught for all eternity. Uh, That would make some of us who are fidgety not very uh, anticipatory of that. Or some imagine even worse, like you're sitting on a cloud. Uh, You're a little fat angel and you've got a harp and you're, you're just up there, you know, making tunes. Or that you're in this sort of ethereal realm of disembodied spirits just floating around. No, the Bible wants to give us a better picture, right? I don't want to go to those places. Like, that picture, superior company in the presence of Jesus Christ. Superior feasting with palates that are not damaged by the fall. In a restored body. This is where we're headed. And so it's not surprising that Jesus would spend so much of his time on earth eating with people. It's a little picture of an already but not yet experience. A picture of what we have to look forward to. And there were also occasions for Jesus in which he displayed great grace to people. He used the table as a place to teach which is why we've said throughout our history, if someone asks, how do I get plugged into the mission of IDC? We often say, eat with people. Like just a couple of times a week, perhaps, you can extend that kind of invitation to those who are not inside the kingdom yet. And so as we look at this text, I want us to look at it in four scenes. I have a question for each scene. Um, as Jesus gives a series of, of lessons at the dinner table. First, he addresses the religious leaders. Then he addresses the guests. Then he addresses the host, and then he addresses a fellow guest who has made a pious comment, and Jesus goes parable on him. Okay? So first, to the Pharisees. The question is tradition or mercy. When you read this little opening uh, paragraph, you're like, how many times are we going to look at, will Jesus heal on the Sabbath? (laughs) Because it just pops up over and over again. And uh, it says that Jesus is in this house, not just of any Pharisee, but a ruler of the Pharisees, which doesn't sound like a good party uh, if a Pharisee's invited you and he's the ruler. And we know that their intention was not to simply be generous or hospitable. There's several clues in the text that, that tell us that, particularly the phrase, they were watching him carefully. I mean, they, they just want to catch Jesus doing something, 
And so it's not surprising that there is an individual with dropsy that is there. It's like he's been planted there to see whether or not Jesus would, would help this suffering man. Dropsy involves the swelling uh, caused by uh, excessive fluid buildup uh, and could lead to the failure of one's uh, organs. And Luke is just like, well, what do you know? Here is a guy at dinner with these Pharisees, and he's got dropsy. They want to know whether or not Jesus will heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus anticipates that, so he raises the question himself in verse 3, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? He knows what they're up to. And in verse 4, they respond kind of the way uh, your kids do when they're in trouble and you ask them a question, but they remain silent. <laughs> um, it's, it's a challenging silence, I think, on behalf of the Pharisees. There's tension in the room. You can feel it as there is this individual. He's suffering. They want to know if Jesus will violate their rules. Mind you, not the Bible's uh, teaching, but their own extra-biblical teaching that they would piled on top of the Scriptures to see whether or not he would violate that. And so Jesus takes the guy, and he heals him, sends him away. I wonder if the guy took something to eat with him. I would have had a, I need a little to-go box, right? Um, and so Jesus then asked them this question. If you had a son or an ox and it falls into the well, into a well on the Sabbath day, would you not pull the son or ox out of the well? First of all, if you could pull an ox out of a well, you're a beast, right? <laughs> but, you, but that's the point. Like if it's, if it's we're, we're told in, in uh, the law in the Torah in Deuteronomy that if someone else's animal is in need, that you're supposed to help. And this is a way that you would love your neighbor. But what has happened to the Pharisees is that they have so much minutia piled up on uh, the Bible that they can't even get to the main part, which is love God and neighbor, Right? And so Jesus, he not only asks, like, if your neighbor's donkey's in a well or your neighbor's son is in the well, he says, your son. Can you imagine today, we won't use a well, maybe your, your son calls you on the phone and says, Dad, fallen in a ditch, can't get out. Would you say, well, you've got to wait till Monday. It's, 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 it's the Lord's day. Um, I, I can't be doing that. Can be pulling your son out of a ditch. Uh, and that's, that's kind of the ridiculousness of the Pharisees. And this is what legalism does. It enslaves you to where you can't see the, really the heart of the gospel. These guys were blinded in their religion. We'll look at this in a couple more weeks in Luke 15. How it's, you can be lost in irreligion or in religion. There, there are two ways to be lost. right? To be, just be a hedonist and live for your own self-pleasure. Or you can be enslaved to that which is not Christianity. And what is needed is a desperate heart change in the lives of these Pharisees. And Jesus, because he also loves them, goes after their souls. Right? And that leads us to this second scene here. And the question I pose is self-promotion or humility. He's looking in this party now. Can you imagine Jesus? He's, he's been invited to this guy's house. <clears throat> he leaves them all silenced. And now he decides to rebuke the guest. And then next, he will rebuke the host. I doubt he ever got invited back to uh, the ruler of the Pharisee's house. And so you're familiar with this text, perhaps, or you're, you're smart people. You, you heard it read. I won't uh, uh, go into detail about every verse, but he, he's looking at the, uh, the, the party, and he's recognizing that these individuals, because they're into self-promotion and they want the applause of others and they want to be thought of as highly, uh, hi highly regarded, they take these seats of honor, 
They want to be distinguished. They want to be noticed. It's a very practical text on, on how uh, the sinful heart often goes, right? how our, our sinful hearts go. And Jesus gives them basically an application of Proverbs 25, 6, and 7. You familiar with this proverb where it says, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it is better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. In other words, better to start low and end up high than be faced with this kind of embarrassment and shame. Settle into the lowest place uh, and not try to, to promote yourself or, 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 or be where you're at or, or be where you want to, to, to be at so that people can uh, look at you and applaud you and praise you and so on. Don't be drawn to public recognition. So go low. Now, the Pharisees were all into this. This was, a, this was a very much part of the culture in which they lived. And Jesus is just basically at a party and he's observing arrogance. He's at a party and he's observing self-promotion. And so we can see their pride. And the question is, can we see our own pride? Right? It's very easy to rebuke the Pharisees, but not turn the mirror of God's word on ourselves. And thankfully we have this text because we need to see ourselves in it. I heard a story that is, it is very sobering by, or about a guy named J.B. Phillips who wrote one of the paraphrases to the New Testament several years ago. This is before the, the uh, message paraphrase came out. And J.B. Phillips was seeing a counselor because of his pride. At least he was humble enough to recognize it. And he was dealing with his own conceit. And he was told to write down his thoughts as honestly as he could write them down. And it's easy to pick on this guy, but would you want your thoughts right, read before our congregation as, as you're admitting your, your sinfulness? And this is what he said. I want to be colossal or soon die. Christianity is a bore unless it can help me demonstrate my uniqueness. I really haven't any interest in others unless they are connected with building up my reputation. My reputation, he says, that's the thing to be the best pastor ever. Now, if a guy can translate the Bible and still have conceit, I'm quite sure I have it, right? And Jesus continues in his teaching to press the importance of humility before God and before others. Because following Jesus is not about self-promotion. It is about self-denial. And what happens when we follow Jesus humbly is we get rid of this addiction to ourselves. We get rid of this addiction to wanting the praise of other people. And so he follows that by giving the, the principle of the kingdom. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, who's going to do the exalting and who's going to do the humbling? Well, the, the New Testament nerds call this in Greek divine passives. You notice the passive tense here, right? Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And the point in the divine passive is, it is God who's doing it. Who is going to humble the puffed up? Almighty. Who is going to exalt the humble? The Almighty. Therefore, let us humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, that in due time he may lift us up. Augustine rightly said it, for those who want to learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, the second thing, and the third thing. 
The Lord takes pleasure in his people, the psalmist says. He adorns the humble with salvation. And so let's walk humbly before our God and before one another. Thirdly, he now rebukes the host. In typical Jesus fashion, and what I pose before you here is, do we want to practice reciprocity or hospitality? It's got a nice little hip-hop potential, I think, uh, in verses 12 to, to 14. Jesus is now at the party, and he says, let me tell you guys, if you're going to have a banquet or a feast, here's how you ought to do it. When you give it, he says, do not invite your friends or your brother, brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Now, how's that for rocking someone's world? Now, of course, this is in keeping with what we read about in uh, the Old Testament, in the law, like Deuteronomy, where God's people were to care for the followers, the widow, the stranger. Now, it's pretty shocking to us when we read these words, and we need to be careful not to to uh, overinterpret it. Jesus is, is not saying that it would be wrong for you to hang with your family or your friends. We know Jesus himself hung out in the home of, of Lazarus and, and with other friends. And we know that the early church met together regularly. Uh, and then in John 13, that people will know we are Christians by how we love one another. So we know we have to be together. But Jesus is saying, do not limit your guest list to that. And be mindful of those who cannot repay you. You, you cannot benefit back from them. That's that idea of reciprocity. You know, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, or I'll take you out to a nice place to eat so that you'll do something in return. Um, no, Jesus is saying, make space for the poor. Make space for the vulnerable. It's like he's at this big party, and everybody's pompous and walking around and wanting the best seat of honor and all these things, and Jesus says, where's the single mom at? Where's the orphan? Where's the needy person? Where's the lonely? They're not here. And Jesus says that's a problem. And it's a problem to us who are Christians because in the gospel, we identify with these people. You see, we are not superior to the poor, the crippled, the lame, or the blind. In the gospel, we are the poor, having nothing to bring to God, and he's brought us to his table. We are the crippled, unable to even walk to God, and he's come and rescued us. We are the blind, unable to see the truth of the gospel. And he opened our eyes, otherwise we would still be in the dark. You see, we identify with these people. This is our story. And therefore, they should be around our table. We show grace because of Jesus' grace toward us. That's the proper response to grace, is grace. A life of generosity a life of hospitality. And so let's close the distance if there's a gap between us and those who are in need. Let's not live by the law of payback, that everything we do needs to be on Instagram or everything we, need, everything we do need, we need to get thanks for, right? Or everything that, that we do, um, people should write a song about us. No, we live for another reward. Notice, notice how Jesus says, you will be blessed because obedience brings blessing always. And you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. I love this statement so much. Because Jesus here ties together in times reward with who you have over for lunch. You see how ordinary mission is. How everything is significant when it's done in the name of Jesus Christ. You're going to be rewarded, probably not in this life, but at the resurrection of the just. That's just a beautiful 
Beautiful motivation. <clears throat> We're looking for another reward. We're looking for Christ himself <clears throat> and to be with him and to hear something like, well done, good and faithful servant. Generosity to the poor and the vulnerable will not go unrewarded or unrecognized by our Lord. And let's remember how, how again, ordinary mission sometimes can, can look. It doesn't always look extraordinary. I used to think this when I was a new Christian, like, like you know, the people we send overseas, man, they're doing some, some uh, extraordinary things. And they really are at one level, that's to be sure. But if you were to watch their daily life, it's some, something like building friendships, having people into their home. They're not doing like crusade preaching. And we can do the same thing right here. Like how many times have we received emails from people overseas who said, pray for such and such couple. We're having them over for tea this week. That's the kind of mission that the Lord calls us to right here. In fact, Spurgeon, I've got to quote Spurgeon on my first Sunday back. He says to a group of aspiring missionaries, if you feel a call to India, seek to prove it by working successfully at home first. For India stands in no need of men who would be useless in England. <laughs> the Spurge, that's fire. Yes. And so let's, let's allow Jesus to, to push us out if we feel insulated. It's easy to live kind of in this Christian shire and, and not be out. And let's be hopeful and optimistic. Who, who knows what kind of conversation you can have over your lasagna? Wouldn't it be great to baptize someone here and they say, I was saved over meatloaf. An IDC member had me over for their great meatloaf, bacon-wrapped meatloaf. And <clears throat> I had some great bacon-wrapped meatloaf on, on my sabbatical. Um, but, but we expect things that, that can happen at the table. This is what Jesus is doing. He's on earth. What are you doing? Not a lot of crusade preaching, which isn't bad. No, he's eating with people, hanging with people. That leads us to the fourth scene. There is this pious fellow guest, and the question is, will we decline or attend? This guy pops up in verse 15, who's at the table with Jesus, and he's kind of the guy who thinks everything Jesus has said is for everybody else. You know, Jesus has rebuked the, uh, the guest, he's rebuked the host, and then the guy, on thinking about the, the messianic feast that's promised, says, blessed are, is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> of course, that's true. Well, the problem is this guy assumes he will be there. And we know that Jesus is not uh, cool with this idea based on really the next word, but. But he said to him, and then Jesus parables him. And if Jesus ever parables you, that's a problem. <laughs> and so he's, he's talking now to, to a guy who, think about this, knows religious language. So there's another example of a, you could be, know some stuff about religion or be in religion, but not be in Christ. He knows enough to know that there's even going to be a feast in the future. The problem is, he's not going to be there, not at least yet. And that's a, that's an, a sober word, like if you're just kind of around Christian stuff, <clears throat> but not in Christ himself. Maybe you went to youth camp, maybe you threw the stick in the fire, maybe you sang Jesus take the wheel. Or said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom. Jesus, though, has good news for you. He invites you. And so when he, when he got, does the parable now, he's inviting this guy, just like he's inviting all of us, into this feast. 
And so he says, this is what it's like. A man gave a great banquet and he invited many. And we should just pause and marvel at the fact, church, that we have been invited to this party by Jesus Christ. I don't know if you've ever received this great invitation and you're like, I can't believe I got invited. <laughs> what am I doing here? What am I going to wear? How should I fix my hair? Like, this is going to be great. That was something. Uh, Jesus has invited us. There's no better party than this one. Even PDD's party pales in comparison to this party, right? Because the Jesus party won't stop. And he's invited us, all of us. And the problem is, he says, the invitations go out, and a lot of people make excuses, and they decline the invitation. And so he says in verse 17, the time for the banquet came, and it was, uh, he, he said, say to those who have been invited, come, for everything is now ready. In this biblical context, the invitation went out twice, kind of like ours do sometimes, where you would say yes to the first invitation, I want to come to the banquet, but then to decline the second invitation when it was time for it was a great insult. And a lot of New Testament scholars point out, and I think this is correct, that Jesus here is, is really uh, targeting uh, the, the Jews, he's targeting these Pharisees who are present, who accepted the first invitation of the law and the prophets, but have now rejected the Messiah. And, and the, the, the parable flows in that direction, I think, where this is like a great commission to the Jew first and now out to the Gentile world. But they are invited. They're still invited. And everyone is invited to this feast. But tragically, they and many others throughout history have made excuses. And so we read about three really lame excuses. The first guy says, uh, I have bought a field and I need to go out and see it. Please have me excused which is kind of sounds strange, right? How many of you would buy some property without looking at it first? Or even worse, the guy says, I bought five yoke of oxen, I need to go examine them. <laughs> like who, who buys a bunch of cattle without looking at them? It's not like CarMax existed back then. I get, you know, you could buy a car without looking at it these days, but there's no OxMax. Like you would, you would have to, you'd have, that's a good business plan for some of you students right there. Um, it's got real potential. And then the third one, we have a little bit of sympathy for him when he says, I married a wife, therefore I cannot come. Hey pal, greatest party in the history of the world. With Jesus Christ present, do you want to come? Can't. Out of vacuum. Okay. I do the dishes on Tuesday, right? It's like I used to do a lot of stuff, but now I got married. Well, there's, there's nothing... There would be nothing prohibiting this guy from going to the party. This is not like, you know, in Deuteronomy it says you got a year, you don't have to be a, uh, uh, go to war, that kind of thing. Plus, this would have been a free date night. This is, this is not a good move on this guy's part. This is free food, free date. Your lady gets to dress up. She loves that. No. No, I can't. I got married. Now you think about these. They sound ridiculous, and this is the way sin works, isn't it? Because what sin does is it makes us, it's very subtle sometimes, it makes us preoccupied with things. Even things that are fine. Like it's fine to buy property. It's fine to have some cattle. It's, it's fine to have a wife. <laughs> it's really fine if she's fine. Uh, but it's the preoccupation with these things. And there's a similar parable. It's not the exact same parable, but it's similar in Matthew 22 where the invitation goes out to this wedding feast and the word says, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, one to his business. Why is it that so many people reject Christianity? 
why they reject the gospel. Often it's not because of deep theological problems that they have. It's that they pay no attention. One goes off to this, one goes off to that. And Jesus is saying, it's a tragedy. It's like the poem, I cannot come to the banquet, don't trouble me now. I have married a wife, I have bought me a cow. I have fields and dominions that cost a tidy sum, don't trouble me now, I cannot come. And you notice in this parable that the guys don't say that they will never come. It's that they won't come now. And this too is a tragic mistake that many people make in their minds. That sin will have us do. And that is to assume eventually I'll come. But right now I'm preoccupied. And, and, and why do we think that that will be the case? No, Jesus has invited us. Everything is ready. We just need to come. And that's what he holds out to you. And I'm sure as we witness to our neighbors and friends, we're going to run into a lot of these kinds of lame excuses. Right? Well, let's not be deterred. Jesus says in verse 21, I want you to go out now, he says, to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. The same group that he's just mentioned. Again, I think this is kind of a pre-great commission text. Jesus now sending out the evangelist to the ends of the earth. Bring in the nations. And he says in verse 23, go out to the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. This is language from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that Paul uses that as God's ambassadors, we are to compel people to be reconciled to God. That is persuade them, plead with them, love them, compel them to come in. And Jesus, as the ultimate hospitable king, says, I want my house to be filled. Jesus wants a big house filled with people, right, who are singing his praise, giving him glory, and he says there's still room. And if you're not a Christian, I want you to hear that. There's still room. And you belong there. Well, Jesus gives a warning to those who rejected the invitation in verse 24. I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall uh, taste my banquet. In other words, the party's going to go on with or without people saying no. He's going to have his feast. He's going to have his party. So let me close with three questions. Finally, Number one, are you coming to the king's party? Man, you've been invited. And you can come. Just as you are. The basis for exclusion is just, you said no. And not saying anything is a no. But say yes. Why not say yes to this? Think about the greatest invitation you could receive today. I don't know what your favorite thing to do is. Maybe you like to shop. And someone says, you know what, I'm going to fly you to Paris. You can have about 10 grand. And you can go shop. You want to go? Can't. Bought a field. Or maybe it's football, season tickets, your favorite team, 50-yard line, private jet get you there every game. Can't, man. Got to go see some cows. Can you imagine? No invitation that would get you excited today is like the invitation that King Jesus has given you. He says, come now, everything is ready. And that's because Jesus has already paid it all. That's why it's free. Came at great cost to him. And Jesus told his disciples before he ascended into heaven, I am preparing a place for you. That's good news. And if we're there, we've done nothing to deserve it. 
It's by His grace. Secondly, are you anticipating this? We as Christians have something to look forward to. And we get to live our everyday lives, including having people over for dinner in light of the last day. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Let's live every day in light of that day. As Luther famously said, there are only two days on my calendar, this day and that day. And we practice hospitality this day in light of that day. And then thirdly, are you practicing this kind of missional hospitality? Maybe you're in some kind of little spiritual cocoon or you're insulated. Let the, let, allow Jesus to push you out. And you may say, well, I'm very introverted. Well, you can do it with an extrovert. Tag team it. It's okay. Or you might say, well, my, my house is too small or my dorm is tiny. I live in like a hobbit house. <laughs> Just remember what Paul says to the Romans in the message paraphrase, Romans 12, 13. Be inventive in hospitality. Be inventive in it. Like just make up an occasion, board game night, cornhole Saturday. Maybe it's just things like dog sitting for a neighbor or going to the grocery store for a neighbor. Find ways to show this kind of compassion and neighbor love. And as we do this, let's invite people to Jesus' party. Let's not just feed them, but let's point them. Point them to Jesus Christ. Everybody's evangelizing for something today. If people were as excited about evangelism as they were about electric cars or CrossFit or kale smoothies or Ted Lasso, there'd be a lot more people in the kingdom. We have the best news. We have the best thing to offer to this world. And so with, with gratitude in our hearts and gladness in our hearts, let's invite them to our feast, but let's invite them ultimately to the king's feast. What a privilege it is to, first of all, be there ourselves recognizing that we're only here by grace, right? We look around, one day we're going to be in heaven looking around and say, what am I doing here? We're here because of Jesus' grace. By ourselves, we're stuck in this Pharisee way of life. But Jesus has transformed us, and now he sends us out in this world to turn strangers into neighbors and neighbors into brothers and sisters. May God give us grace to do this. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for the good news that we find in it and for the, the wonder of uh, the wonderful hope that we have of seeing our Christ one day and recognizing that we will be in this kingdom because of his grace and only by his grace. And I pray as recipients of grace, we would be givers of it and displayers of it as we open up our lives, open up our homes, open up our tables to turn strangers into neighbors and neighbors into brothers and sisters. Grant us grace for this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.